to what end? Like, what what is the purpose? What was the point? We have probably the worst possible outcome. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Roger. And welcome to The Middle, where we try to have thoughtful conversations about awkward topics on our search to find the middle. announced the death of the majesty queen elizabeth ii i act as if god exists put your masks on how dare you you have stolen my dreams my childhood with your empty words andy how are you doing i lost my voice <laughs> too soon andy <laughs> to be joking looks like you've lost more than that um i'm seeing that the uh the face profile is looking a little bit slimmer, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if they've quite worked out um, face scales yet, have they? Well, the 3D scans are probably coming. <laughs> well, How's it going, by the way? Okay, so this is the, the weight loss, keeping ourselves honest on the podcast regiment, but half a kilo this week. <laughs> the the weekly weigh-in ceremonial style, like the biggest loser. Yeah, I feel I like it. Um, <laughs> I uh, have kicked it up this week. So I've um I feel very righteous, very self-righteous because I feel like I've gotten my my diet a little bit more under control. Um and it's definitely started to uh move the kind of mental needle and also the scale. So I am uh, a kilo down as far as the scale goes and uh you know I'm I'm feeling it as well like I feel much lighter and I almost can start to feel uh, some of that positive visual reinforcement coming back. Um, so that's good. And I can feel kind of like the uh, the tailwind starting to push me along where I now am more resilient against binging, right? Because I am i don't want to ruin the work that, that I've done. So I can start to feel like that little bit of excitement creeping up, that little bit of results. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. You know, my, my birthday is coming up in November. And I'll be um, turning 38. And I thought to myself, maybe this is like a really good time of year to always do it, to say actually every time on your birthday you want to kind of stick to a certain weight or a certain kind of um, physical challenge. So something I'm mulling over, whether that's um, I'm biting off too much to to promise that to myself. (laughs) So the last time I went on a good proper diet and recalibration was when I turned 30 and got to a, a good a good sort of healthy weight and, and so on as I entered my 30s. And so, I, you know, like you, approaching the 40s. So, I, I think it would be good to have that like in between like the decades, like you can do whatever the fuck you like, but <laughs> either end you've got you've got to weigh in like- You've got to bookend it, yeah. I think it's also like as you, as you get older, you just almost want to prove to yourself that you can still do it. Uh, and I know because I obviously we've spoken about this, we're both- gone through weight loss transformations and, and composition things. But I have a really clear, you know, I've got photos, but I've also got a really clear mental picture of what I looked like or what I can look like. And when you slip into being out of shape, you kind of start to question yourself, I'm a year older, I'm a couple of years older, whatever. Can I actually get back to that? Like, is it actually po- physically possible? And I think it's a good kind of, well, uh, attempt to see if you can actually reach that. And most of the times I'm sure you can, right? But you just... These things that happen, it's like, oh, I'm a year older. Can I, can I do it? Am I starting to see any like any changes that are that are more than just like putting on a few kilos, right? 
Um, so I think that's mentally kind of good to check in and, and, and try to do that, right? Yeah, I'm actually uh, reading this book at the moment called Outlive by Peter Atia. And yeah, he just goes through all of the different He's just like this absolute machine of like an optimizer when it comes to his own health. So he's he he like literally has like implants to give him his like real time blood glucose levels and has um <laughs> you know spends like two thousand dollars a a a year for a colonoscopy just in case he's got cancer and <laughs> like does like those like whatever those body scans are like every you know just all oh, the dexa yeah i've done some dexa scans <laughs> so everything's just like completely measured and he does like he, all these different types of exercises and diets and all this anyway so he's like the extreme like everything is like he, you can tell he's like a anal retentive sort of perfectionist but nonetheless like he his book is very it's not like he he's not trying to sell like to everyone that people should do what he's doing like he's he's like okay look yeah, all right. This is what I do, but like here of the things I do, here are the the kind of the the, the lowest hanging fruit that like it's worth doing. Anyway, it's easy to talk about diet and uh and exercise and all that sort of stuff and um yeah, it's just it, it's yeah, it's a really interesting book, but like I think to your point like he talks about the decathlon of life sort of thing where there's you, you know, you should train for your final decade of life, so it's a good final decade of life. So it's not just that you're you live a long life, but it's that you live like a high quality of life. And he talks about you know you should train so that you can like stand up and yeah. sit down, like and you know you can get up, <laughs> like you know all of these things that that you might struggle to do when you're in your eighties, nineties, and even hundreds if you make it. It's it's something that's quite fascinating, and um, I, d- I haven't read that book. But I have listened to a podcast series called Lifespan with um, uh, Dr. David Sinclair, who's a bit of a renowned um, expert in this area. And he has a similar vein where he talks about what the science of anti-aging looks like. And he actually experiments on himself and has done for some quite some time. And he looks incredible for his age, which is um, always good to, to listen to someone who's, <laughs> who's experimenting on, on aging techniques. But it did kind of paint a picture that i didn't really want to hear which was like all the things that you already know around like how to look after your health and and um you know exercising and sleeping well but there's also certain drugs and things i think that um there is a relationship between consuming less of pretty much everything (laughs) and living longer which uh we're we're kind of going through now hopefully we'll get some benefits too in fasting but uh yeah it's, it's interesting piece and i think that the the whole industry around aging and what that last kind of chapter of life looks is going to change a lot well i hope it is yeah uh yeah did you end up uh voting yes i'm gonna tell i'm gonna tell kind of a bit of a replay of the last week of the voice right and um i think you know we we're good mates and we do this podcast and that requires some communication during the week and um talking about topics and things like that but i think that week before the voice referendum I must have been calling you almost every day, sometimes twice a day, <laughs> because I went through a bit of a I went through a bit of a crisis, and I, and I think that um, in some ways I'm still there. It rolled into the um, the Israel Palestine crisis, <laughs> and have melded together in some strange ways. So that last week I had a bit of a crisis, and around my vote and thinking and, and listening to the debates and the arguments that I have been housing in my head. I was pretty much on the doorstep of a no vote and I ended up being a yes vote in the last 24 hours. It was, wait, wait, it was the Kamal interview that convinced you, right? <laughs> yeah, Kamal, why people so unkind. Um, 
Look, I, I think that I just want to kind of put this out there because I think that what I have seen. So, so by the way, the national vote was sixty point seven percent no. All right, so resounding no. Every state and territory except for the ACT voted no, and so it was really as clear and unanimous a, a victory for the no campaign that that could be right. And um, I think it was a lot more. It, it wasn't as close as what people thought it might have been. Right now, I want to kind of explain why I nearly voted no because I feel like there's a lot of vilification of people who did that, even though you know sixty percent of the country has voted no. There still is stigma, and I know I was feeling it at the time, right when I was talking to you about it. I decided that you know the principles of the voice in the referendum I fundamentally disagreed with. You know, I, I think that while I absolutely support Indigenous. Affairs, and I understand that there's problems and work to be done. I just couldn't get on board with this idea of separating out, separating out a group of people constitutionally. And you know, when and I, and I truly do believe that when it comes to wanting to have equitable outcomes to achieve equity, it's very very hard to do that when you're constantly reminded that you are different. And within the concepts and the principles of the voice. It has this underlying assumption that every indigenous person has an inherent disadvantage, you know. And some people would say, "Well, that's what the stats say," but I don't believe that to be true, and I don't believe it to be helpful. And so it was really, really challenging me around. This is not the way to actually remind people of their difference in this way. It actually you can get involved and solve the problems and do other things without having to call out a separate group of people in our democratic process. So that's kind of where why I was. Think, you know that is my principle, and that's what I believe. Why, why I turned yes, and, and by the way, I was I was afraid to talk to some people about that, just because I f- was feeling like I would be letting certain people down. But why is why I turned yes in the end of the day was that I really just kind of came back to the original Uluru statement of the heart. I reread it a few times, and what I think was really missing in this campaign was that it was the reconciliation reconciliation side of it. It was that all the indigenous leaders. At that, at that kind of gathering, said, "This is our gift to you, right? This is your chance. We we want to be part of Australia moving forward, even in spite of all the heinous things that have happened to us. We will play by your rules. We want to be part of your system that's been imposed on us, and this is our gift to you to move forward together. And that's ultimately why I voted yes in the end, even though I disagree with some of the principles. I think that it shows a lot of when when you position it that way, it shows a lot of." Um, Indigenous population swallowing their pride and a lot of other things, and actually saying, "We are, we do want to move forward with you within your system, and we don't want to burn the house down. We want to kind of help you from inside the house." And that's ultimately why I voted yes in the end. Yeah. So I thought I'd just share that, given that the the heat that everyone's probably feeling at the moment. We spoke in our a week to go episode about some of these issues, or maybe not explicitly, but. Our kind of doubts, or at least I've never been 100% on board with yes. I did vote yes, but for me, there are too many kind of intellectual issues that I I can't reconcile in my mind to become like an advocate for yes, put it that way. But equally, you know, I'm not sold on (laughs) basically saying to Indigenous Australians either that nut, (laughs) tough titties, you know, so landed with yes. And I think I said, made a comment to you in that week when you were grappling with it. I, I sort of feel a little bit like a tr- an old traditional Mediterranean, you know, grandfather who, who deep down because of his deep religious convictions, doesn't want to attend his, his gay granddaughter's wedding. But, um, <laughs> you know, but 
in the end shows up despite his beliefs in on, on these things at the end of the day just because he he does support his granddaughter right? <laughs> and wants to yeah. and, and just knows that his granddaughter will be happier if you attend the wedding right rather than um, not go and by the way i do support gay marriage i'm just i'm I'm just coming up with a, a, a potential analogy. So it's not that I've necessarily convinced myself of, of the merits of yes per se, as opposed to like, I want to do what I think's right. And I don't know why I think my sense or my instincts are that it's right to vote yes. I just know that I feel better writing yes on the ballot paper than writing no. But if you ask me to kind of work through all the ins and outs of it, yeah, like you, I, I, I sort of think about like in, in let's say, 200 years time, right? What well, what's the end state? Like what's the end goal is it? And cuz when you put something in the constitution, that that's kind of how you have to think about it. You have to think about it as a permanent this is the, this is the way forward for, you know, for Australian society going forward. Otherwise, you wouldn't put it in the in the constitution. You you deliberately keep it out of the constitution. So the 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 question at hand is, do you want to enshrine a thing in perpetuity that like you say says to one group, you're victims, you're you're a class of people who, you know, I mean, keep bearing in mind that people in 200 years' time um, or even 50 years' time for that matter don't have to inherit the baggage and legacies of the current or the or the historical and the current challenges, right? They, they, we can move past this and all be successful as Australians, right? So that's that was the hang-up yeah. for me. So, And there was exactly an argument that I saw from um, one of the Indigenous No campaigners. They literally used that example that... I don't want my kids being saddled with this, this kind of, because, you know, time and time again, and we've spoken about this in our other race episodes and things like that and our gender episodes, you do live up to your labels sometimes. And we know this from the tests around declaring what gender you are before you take a test influences your perception on how your gender should achieve in certain um, areas like STEM versus literature and what's on, you know, the start of every standardized test in Australia. Are you an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? You know, and I, and I and I just kind of think that we have to be careful about that because you do not want that baggage affecting you, and we know that that happens when you declare when you kind of put yourself into that grouping. So yeah, I think that uh, it's it's been a real tricky one. Landed on yes. The other reflection I have is when I actually went to vote. You know, it was at a small scout hall in my area. And I had to go past three levels of um, yes/no uh, campaigners before I actually got to the booth, or trying to um, to talk to me and to engage me and hand out their pamphlets. Kind of rushed past those people. I'm, you know, not the most approachable person anyway, and um, voted, and then and then came out. On the way out, there were two people standing very close together: one with a no campaign shirt and one with a yes. But they were standing really close. Um, there were two old, uh, an old man who was on the no side and an old lady, both with, you know, pure white hair on the yes side. And I stopped and I just, there wasn't many people at that point, And I stopped and I just asked them, do you think that there's anything that you would both agree on with each other? And, and you would agree that they, they feel the same way as you do. And they thought for a second, they kind of looked at each other. And then they said, I think we would both agree that we both care about indigenous people. And I thought that was amazing, right? I thought because, you know, the debate, the kind of rhetoric has been so divisive online and you know, everywhere, everywhere. But here there's two people standing like less than two feet apart at a polling booth volunteering their time and they were agreeing that even though they were on opposite sides of the bench that they both cared about Aboriginal people. 
And that's a lot more that restored my faith a bit, that we're not going to be as broken from this as potentially, you know, what the worst case scenario suggests. Now, if you if you switch on the news, like the last few days, it's a totally different story. You've got the, you know, most people who are liberal having a complete hissy fit and tantrum online and pretty much calling foul of a thousand reasons. I get it. It hurts to lose and it hurts to not achieve something that you've invested a lot of your energy and soul in. But calling people, you know, the way that they're just like, oh, well, 60% of people, you know, they only got that because of the lies and the misinformation on a global scale. I've never seen anything like it, uh, even though they had, you know, five times the funding or whatever it is to, to do what they needed to do or saying that, Oh, isn't it funny that when you look at the at the party lines of who voted which way, that it's directly related to how educated people are? You know, th- things like that that they throw out, or just kind of understand that you, you know th- this is not a time to further divide, right? It's not it's not a time to say that everyone who voted no doesn't care about indigenous people or are inherently racist. Like I think that uh, that was shameful, and I get it; they're hurting. But I I, I thought that that was um not helping anyone and still after all of this it's not helping themselves when will they realize you know that this they they have caused this right and i i'm really keen on talking to you about some of this kind of postmortem on this right Um, i know it's too soon but like i want to get your take on like all that anger you know like heads will roll you know someone's got to pay for this in, in in you know a pound of flesh like what's your thought on the fallout yeah so um i want to give my anecdote of my voting booth and then I'll, I'll get to that. So you, you mentioned uh, so many sausages. <laughs> I, look, I, I, I think it's pretty fair to say I live in a more um, progressive area than yourself. Must be well educated. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the the booth that around where I live would would have been probably not the highest percentage of yes voters, but like in the country, but pretty close to that. So we're talking like ninety percent. A 90% yes vote in my area. So, and, you know, very much the sentiment all around that area and my neighbourhood was all yes and it would be, yeah, a brave person to kind of campaign on the no side at at the booths where around my way. So, there was this guy, though, wearing like a sandwich board style kind of you know, kind of poster of of no, of no, and it was just one guy, right, outside the booth where I voted. And it just reminded me of Die Hard with a Vengeance uh, where Bruce Willis has to wear the, <laughs> you know, I hate, um, you know, or I, I can't remember the, the language, but black people or something to that effect, like a very... It was made many decades ago. It wasn't the word black people. <laughs> a, 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 bla- a black neighborhood. Uh, and it just felt like, it felt like that. Uh, it reminded me of that. And I think... He must have loved it. <laughs> he must have loved it. Well, to be honest, I didn't see any tensions or anything like that for the moments that I was there. But, you know, you could you could imagine at some, at some point. He's like, guys, calm down. We all <laughs> shop at the same metro, okay? <laughs> so, just to your question about the, the fallout and all that sort of stuff... You know, we're part of, notwithstanding our views on this is a little, you know, we're probably a little bit different to what I think a progressive elitist sort of perspective might sort of have. But nonetheless, we are kind of probably you and me and and probably anyone listening to this, this episode also is like probably exposed to that side of society, right? The, you know, the, the kind of the the group of society that perceives themselves to be the the progressive, you know, modern 
sensible center center left maybe right and we're probably yeah. part of that um we're exposed to that right whether we identify that or or we're ourselves or whether we, either way we 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 see it so if you're on social media or of any kind like the chances are the people that you interact with on social media would be of a kind that would overwhelmingly be in the yes camp so and i get it certainly you know on on linkedin on facebook and all that sort of stuff just how people are kind of i think in an echo chamber with each other thinking that that's normal right and not having any exposure to what most Australians actually think about this. And I think that's where they screwed the campaign up because I think most people did not realise that when they go out there and want to proselytise why people should vote yes, that they were actually convincing people to vote no. And I think this is something that they could do well to understand because if you think that your progressive values are right, then you should be smarter about how you present it to other people because people do not like being talked to. They do not like being told they're bad if they don't agree with you. And they don't like the idea that this this notion of elitists or inner city elites kind of whatever, they don't like the idea that this is the group with all the power, all the influence in society, and you've just got to do what they say because they're university educated and, and they know best. They're smarter than everyone else, right? You And then you've got the rest of... Australia actually saying, fuck you, <laughs> no, I'm going to do my own thing, right? Yeah. And that's why yeah. in places like America, Donald Trump is looking like he will be elected president again. And that's why potentially we might see similar things come in Australia if the progressive side of politics in this country are not a bit smarter about how they present their ideas and themselves and their views. And I think this is just like an example of that. Yeah, I agree. You know, and I think that that's, that's why we're getting that reaction too. That's why we're getting that tan, that liberal tantrum at the moment, right? Because they cannot believe, they, they, they cannot believe that they actually don't control the power, right? And that they, 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 the only way people must disagree with them is that they're idiots or they've been bamboozled by misinformation, right? And I, and I think that they're not looking hard enough at their own, at their own actions and, and how, you know, humans work, right? And how people need to be aligned and need to be taken on the journey for things, right? And I think the, the biggest thing for me too is like, and I want to get to this um, this idea of the blame game and, and, and whether someone is responsible and how we should approach that. But referendums, man. <laughs> referendums don't work like without bipartisan support without both parties towing the line with a fairly simple issue mechanical issue that is not divisive right and that was fairly common knowledge and would have been even more ingrained in political circles so i'm keen on kind of understanding all right if you where do where do you cross the line because if you listen to um albanese he's kind of like this is what indigenous people ask me to do this is what I promised to do. And really, I'm being brave and holding my and fulfilling my promise to them while other people are saying, no, it's not brave. It's actually foolish because it was never going to work. You were having voting that was telling you it was going to, it was going to be uphill and it wasn't going to work. You didn't change anything. You didn't give more detail. So, you know, what did you expect to happen except people being heartbroken and divided? Yeah, well, I think in our very first episode where we discussed the voice, I think we discussed how 
both sides were actually playing politics with this. So there's this charge that gets labelled at the opposition that they're playing politics with it, and absolutely they were playing politics with it. But I, I think we need to also call a spade a spade and say the government was very much playing politics with it too. So the very first thing that the Prime Minister, when he was elected in his very first speech, declared that he would be doing this. And that's great to a screaming room of Labor supporters in some yeah. inner, inner West bowling club. That's a, that's a red panty night right there. <laughs> <laughs> but if you genuinely want to work through this complicated question, it, it, it has to be, you have to, like, this, is, this was bad politics, right? This was really poorly handled by the government. They did not work this one through. It should never have been put to the Australian people when it was so obviously going to fail. And I guess, you know, one of the things is they could have, I mean, there was people saying, you know, they should cancel it, you know, defer it, make changes or whatever. So they could have course correct it, but they didn't. They dug, and, and for, to what end? Like, what, what is the purpose? What was the point? We have probably the worst possible outcome where we have people agitated because we didn't vote yes. Some people presuming that's because Australia's racist and Australia hates Indigenous people. We have Indigenous people feeling, okay, well, no one cares about us. And we've got mainstream Australia highly sceptical about the ambitions and, and what people in this space want. So what good did this referendum do? It set it, it set us back years. And I know that, you know, the Prime Minister said, oh, well, no, this was good. We all recognise now that we need, you know, that we all value, yeah, I'm sorry, but this compared to the alternative, the alternative would have been you have a sensible conversation and maybe in two or three years when you've done your homework and you've got your ducks in, in line and you've had the conversation with the Australian public, you have a successful referendum. Or if you come yeah. to the conclusion that you can't have, you know, have it constitutionally recognised, then you go to your next best alternative. Now we have all, these, all the state governments withdrawing their contemplation of treaties, uh, you have no prospect of, I, I don't think, a legislated voice because that's going to be considered political suicide and we are years behind now. And and if the government is not held accountable for this because of their- you can hold the opposition accountable too, but the government is- they're the ones in power. I, I honestly do think they need to wear, wear a, a significant amount of blame for this. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. It's like a, I suppose, you know, it's this kind of echo chamber that you're talking about. Like the, the budget was massive. The support was like all over the, like it was this icky feeling of, to begin with, the referendum of 97% of the popu of the non-Indigenous population deciding <laughs> something that so severely impacts 3% of the Indigenous population, right? Of Australia, sorry. Indigenous people of Australia. So it was kind of really icky to begin with in terms of a referendum. And I think just the way it was put together as well. But I, I also feel like, you know, in terms of responsibility and accountability, like, I don't know, like, where, where do you feel corporations sit in this? <laughs> like, you know, because, like, seriously, a, the whole of the AFL Commission, AMA, ANZ, BHP, Bendigo, Commonwealth Bank, Coles, Lendley's, Wes Farmers, Pretty much all of the ASEX, um, you know, two hundred, are supporting, if not supporting, the voice to Parliament, 
and being actual donors, and that's only coming out next year of how much money they actually put into it. How do, and sixty percent of the population voted no. Like it's like this weird public gaslighting of like this is where the interests kind of get misaligned, right? And it's almost kind of it, it just it just boggles the mind, right? I, I agree with you. I think that it's not it wasn't brave. I understand that promises are made in election cycles and things like that, but there is a lot of room to move inside of fulfilling a promise or the spirit of a promise, but doing it in a way that's going to spare the Indigenous people and, you know, the Australian population all this divisiveness and actually getting some real work done. Like, I think that this is going to be like Brexit for Australia, like the people you know, not talking to each other for, for months and months, maybe years around like whether they're voting yes or no and this kind of stuff, right? And I just think it was like, like you said, you just left there scratching your head saying, where did we get to? What did we achieve? You know, we're no closer to reconciliate, like some form of reconciliation. In fact, we're probably now a generation away from something meaningful. This is not like, oh, we've missed the bus, we'll catch the next one, right? Like this is back to the drawing board, you know? And um, I, I just, yeah, I, I wonder how it will be in the end and, and, and uh, yeah, I don't know. No, I think this unmitigated disaster. Um, and the other thing too is, like on on the on the Sunday of the <laughs> after the vote, right? Yeah, the, you, you saw the first articles in the um, in, in the aftermath saying, "Oh, the government's now going to get back to a bread and butter agenda, a um, let's cost of living <laughs> cost of living pressure." It's like this is not the um, this is a clear message to the government: look, don't fuck around in this space because there's no votes to be won. So we had a little bit of fun for a little while, but we'll put that back in the. Um, in the too hard basket and um, and leave it for another decade or more. Uh, I'm sure there's many people in government, both elected representatives and, and you know, uh, public servants who are deeply and sincerely committed to improving outcomes for Indigenous Australians. So I wouldn't want to for a second suggest, you know, be cynical to suggest that that's not the case. But, but nonetheless, like any notions of grand gestures now I think are well and truly defeated and I I actually think like one analogy is they sort of say that there's some areas of policy where the opposite side of politics that normally rails against a certain position has to be like for something to endure and be sustainable it's almost like the opposite side of politics has to implement it so for example to have effective and sustainable and enduring workplace relations reforms or IR reforms, a, a Labor government needs to implement it. Otherwise, you know, if, if a if a coalition or the Liberal Party tries yeah. to do it, then all that will happen <laughs> is the Labor Party will roll it back and we'll be back to where we started or even, you know, yeah. <laughs> even worse. Yeah, this- um, and, and likewise, I think with environmental reforms, uh, if you mm. look at enduring environmental policy, it has to be, you know, the coalition or, the, you know, the maybe the Nationals, as well uh, on board implementing it as their policy otherwise it'll, it'll be opposed you know so yeah and i i kind of feel like i don't know that there's necessarily i don't think it's black and white that that one side of politics owns indigenous affairs but i i definitely think there's some clear differences in approach in yeah. between both sides of politics so i think that kind of grand gesture stuff especially something like this and i think the former coalition government was did have an agenda and i think they were doing it very quietly and and not 
maybe not as ambitiously as as what some would say they should have. Uh, it was slow, and but nonetheless, I think if that had more time or they, they, they had the benefit of of them implementing this proposal, I think we we would see we would see it in 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 action in Australia. Yeah, and you know, I'll go back to the the other episode, um, calling out Julian Lesser, kind of working behind the scenes to try to create that um, support inside of the um, the coalition. Right now, I mean, I, I totally. I totally agree on that, and I think that um, it's it's not a case of licking their wounds and kind of getting back to the grind of things. I think that we we'll we'll see something. I just really, really feel for the people, the the indigenous people. I suppose I, I really feel that when you put yourself out there, right? Like if if you kind of come to what I was saying about the Uluru statement from the heart, this idea of saying we've been oppressed as a people. Um, colonization has been devastating on our culture and our population, but we're willing to put all of that aside and we're going to extend this olive branch to the Australian people so that perhaps we can move forward together. And that, that'll be our, our gift to you. You can relieve all, you can relieve a, a significant portion of your white guilt, however repressed that may be, and we can move forward together. And I, I just think that it's impossible for those people to, to not think that a resounding no vote has just snapped that olive branch in half, when in fact it's way more complicated than that, right? Like it's, and, and this, is, this is, I guess, what I would say, and I hope the message kind of comes out in the future is that, it, well, the very near future is that the no vote does not mean a lack of support for Indigenous people. And we do need to find another way to bring that to a front. And like you said, probably not a grand gesture or apology or these kind of things, but we need to find other ways to make sure the right people um, with the right capabilities are working through these things. But if you're sitting in that chair as an Indigenous person, I, f- I feel like it would be near impossible to feel like your country has rejected your offering <laughs> if, uh, you know, and has rejected you. And even more so, you know, like you've, you've been dragged through the mud in the, for the last uh, six months. So th- this idea of rejecting the offer and rejecting you, yes, Australia absolutely rejected the offer. So there's this idea that, oh, you know, they're all racist, right? Now there will be attempts to say that, oh, it's just it's just subconscious race- racism or it's subconscious bias. It is racist sen- sentiment or whatever. And look, if you want to play a, a game of semantics, then, you know, that, that that's a different thing. But I, in, in the commonly understood definition of racism, I, I don't think... The Australian people were motivated by a racist view towards Indigenous Australians. I think what it was motivated by, however, was a pushback on this idea that we need to think of ourselves as as our race, right? That that our race is our, is our identity, and it, it was a pushback to this notion that we need a separate thing for a separate group of people defined by whether they're Indigenous or not. And if that's racist. Then, may, then fine, you can call it racist if you want. But the amount of times I heard things like, why, why, why is this the way forward? Why is it the way forward to draw a circle around these people and say, you need some special treatment, right? In reality, we know it's not special treatment. The purpose would be to target policies to meet the needs of a group of people who share a common ancestry, but that actually also share a whole bunch of challenges related to historical factors, yeah. right? But most Australians, I think, maybe didn't necessarily 
get in the weeds on those sorts of things and just at a principle level reacted negatively to it. But I do think identity yeah. and, and Australian sort of view that, no, no, we're Australian and we should foster the notion of being Australian, not the notion of being this type of Australian or this type of Australian. We should we should just promote the vision of being all commonly and equally Australian. And that's what yeah. I think Australians motivated the, the, the no vote, I think. It was almost a masterclass in, you know, you know our original episode on race and subsequently white privilege and white fragility. It was almost out of the playbook of that, right? You cannot lay it at the feet of Australian people, an overwhelmingly, uh, you know, multicultural society, and kind of bring that to the front, right? Like when, when you're attacking those things of saying, actually, because you're, you're, you have migrated here or you're not the First Nations people, you are separate from this group, even though they may know consciously and recognize that that group has experienced mass disadvantage. It triggers these feelings in people. It's like that kind of thing, you know, that, you know, you and I were born here. We didn't choose to be born here. And then in their mind, it's like, well, does that make me any less Australian than the indigenous population? And these are the thoughts that, that some of this started to trigger, to, to, to bubble up, right? And that's why it's such a charged issue as well, because for someone who's born here, this is their home. They are, you know, as far as they're concerned, you know, this is where they've, this is the only country that they have. And, and, and to make these kind of labels and different categories of people, especially at a constitutional level, is, was just obviously too much for people, you know? And I think that was that really necessary to, to get, get across what, what we need to achieve, I think is the question, right? And, and where within that, you know, could you have made some concessions or more detail or other protections? And I think the, the, the thing that really got most people, and, and I know you and I were in this camp, was whatever it is, the worst thing you can try to do from the Yes campaign is just go, it's simple, vote yes. <laughs> because you are just, con you are being so condescending, you're blanketing out these things and you're just trying to say, look, this is a moral this is just like something you shouldn't even be considering. It's so simple. You either support Indigenous people or you don't. Get on the fucking bus, right? And I think that's the worst thing they could have done because, you know, when people are actually wanting to engage with a topic, which they should, because that engagement will lead probably more to, <laughs> towards more impetus to change the status quo, they just shut it down. It's like, don't think about it too much. Just vote yes because it is the right thing to do. It's like, well, I want to kind of think about it. And it's like, no, no, don't think about it. <laughs> Just, oh, yes. So the, the other thing is like, so there's the grand gesture aspect of the voice, which for the symbolism of it, the reality is 60% rejected the symbolism of it. So 60% of Australia do not want us to define different types of Australians depending on our ancestry. And I mean, frankly, I can kind of empathize with that because- you know, if you put to me a thought experiment of a um, two babies in a hospital, right? What does it matter? What what do the backstories of the parents matter? They're two babies that could live potentially equally prosperous lives. There's no there, there's no actual need other than a, a, a sense of self and a sense of identity that occurs in their upbringing post birth, right? There's there's nothing inherent, so. The majority of Australians have said, have rejected the symbolism of it. 
So then if you then look at the other component of what the voice is, so a big part of it is that that gesture, that gift as it gets described as from the Indigenous uh, leaders, although not all Indigenous leaders, um, as we as we know through the campaign. Um, the most. But the other side of it is then the practical side. Okay, will this give you better outcomes? The Yes campaign did not win that argument. They did not communicate how this policy will achieve better outcomes for Indigenous Australians. It did not win the, the debate of ideas. It was focused on the symbolic aspect, I think, predominantly, and it lost because Australians didn't agree with yeah. it. But even then in terms of the actual the policy case for The Voice, I don't think they won that argument either because they could not define what the policy was. They could, not, they could say in vague terms how they would do it, but they didn't put out draft legislation. Even then, they kind of they, they rested on these sort of vague notions of we just need to ask Indigenous people what's going to be good for Indigenous people and then that's going to fix it without yeah. kind of acknowledging that, well, we, <laughs> you know, it's very rare that Indigenous affairs policy gets cooked up by a couple of white guys in somewhere in Canberra, right? There is currently consultation and engagement with, with, with Indigenous communities. This, well, I mean, the white guys definitely write it. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> This like that. There are many different perspectives, and um, yeah. and and already. So then, the question is, how does then the elected nature of voice representatives improve the improve on that? And I like, I, and I and I still, I'm still not sure about that. Like, I, I think a grassroots voice makes more sense to me. Like, so if there's like a remote community that you have maybe a, some infrastructure to support community leaders coming together and being able to convey their their perspectives and views in a way that policymakers can actually understand and respond to. And but that's at the grassroots level. But then the thought of having some, you know, high falutin body in Canberra that purports to represent all Indigenous Australians as though they're one homogenous group that all have the same needs and views on on the world. I'm not I'm not sure if that necessarily does produce better policy outcomes. And yeah. my and the reason I don't know is because I don't know how it's all going to work, and neither does the government because they haven't prepared a draft legislation or bill, and they sort of say, well, you know what, if this thing gets up and it doesn't work, we can just change it and do something completely different. Okay, well, <laughs> this isn't a really compelling case for it. So the grandfather in me wants to vote yes, but if you ask me to sort of sell the case to someone, I- I'm not sure I can. Yeah. I mean- I want to go to a different aspect now, actually, and that's this idea of yeah, this is this idea of the the media and the and the reporting around it and social media and things like that. So we've acknowledged that it's definitely easier and sometimes more effective to run a negative campaign, right? Like this is a well known thing, and um, people you know naturally geared up to what they will lose rather than what they will gain. And, and put heavier stock in that, right? Like that's just human human nature. So I want to acknowledge that that the that you know it's always much easier to to run a negative campaign. I do want to discuss with you this idea. I've been this is kind of bled, I mentioned that this has bled into the Israel Palestine conflict and all the all the kind of comings and goings of that for me in the last couple of weeks. And one thing that I've overwhelmingly felt fatigued by and really aggrieved by is just how the media reports on these things 
and how that is a black mirror or a reflection of of us, of you and I, of the population, of how we consume news now and expect it to have this element of entertainment. You know, the, the negativity that goes into it, the talking heads, the screaming over each other, the gotcha moments, the trying to squash complex ideas down into a tagline of, you know, do you support this? Do you not? Do you know, you know do you think colonization was good or bad? And just trying to like form these um, gotcha moments. And I, and I feel really sickened by it sometimes that we, we as a collective, we are all responsible for it because they're giving, they, they're doing it because it works. And that inherently that maybe we as consumers of, of media just on, on a weird deep level, we're addicted to the drama and the conflict of it all. And that we actually, there's a part of us that that's excited and enjoys watching the fire. I've been really grappling with that, right? Because I think that politics and the way politicians behave, the way the media behaves is a reflection on our consuming habits. I've really been struggling with that because it's it's horrible and has played out so viciously and, and kind of like trashy um, when it comes to the voice and, and pretty much every other topic, you know, like when did it become entertainment to watch two talking heads shout over the top, top of each other and feel that kind of like adrenaline and, and panic arise when you watch it, but also enjoy it. Like it's, it's getting worse. Surely you must agree. Uh, well, I think it's always been entertainment. I, I mean, I think the only thing that's changed in, in recent years is obviously with the internet and lots of, you know, multiple channels and different kind of formats and there's been a lot more innovation. So it's a bit hard to innovate and get better at the kind of the tragedy porn that we see every day when there's limited to newspapers, a couple of free day channels and, um, and maybe radio, right? But now we've got every extreme covered, mm. right? Um, yeah. and, and, and each tailors to its own niche, right? Some some are more interested in in the um, tragedy porn than others, right? Um, and some are a bit, remain a bit more credible. So, I think just on the media, though, like I think in terms of the voice, I reckon if you did a straw poll of journalists in Australia, other than kind of like the shock jocks style ones, uh, you would have like the ninety percent figure from the booth near where I live probably matches the sentiments of, of Australia's journalists, right? And I don't think journalists really understood the, the sentiments or that they didn't understand the no case, right? They purported to kind of give balance and they purported to sort of, no, no, we're, we're going to be neutral. We're going to give both sides, like we're going to cover both perspectives. But if you don't yourself believe one side, it, it is hard to kind of give the, the most generous interpretation of, of the arguments, right? especially when people have multiple reasons for voting no and there's multiple different arguments for voting no. So one of the things that I saw was, um, you know, a bit of a post-mortem of, you know, we shouldn't be giving equal airtime to arguments that are not valid, right, just for the sake of it, like a false sense of balance, yeah. right? And I think if you think that that's the case, then you you fundamentally do not understand the Australian people and the reasons they did not support it, Right. You know, so so I think even like I don't know if you you had the same feeling where you just wanted to, and I had this listen even to podcasts that that I who people who nine times out of ten like I I think they're bang on the money, but I just wanted I just wanted to hear an enunciation of my doubts. So even though I voted yes, I still wanted like wanted to hear someone kind of get to the heart Grapple of with it. why I was considering to vote no, and I never did in the whole campaign, and um, 
you know, I think that's because people didn't really think beyond, like they, they were t- too short term in their thinking. They th- were thinking of like, do you want this voice thing to support Indigenous outcomes without thinking, well, yeah, but hang on, but it should be in the constitution. Is that the, is that the best place for it? And the, just the, sorry, the final thing on the media, and I can see you eager to jump in, is that was apparent to me in the coverage, and I've seen this in a whole bunch of areas, this this new, this thing that of, of like quoting people like sound bites, right? So you get the, yeah. like the, the, the snippet of someone saying something out of context, or there's like one line that they actually said. So it's not like someone's edited some mishmash of stuff together. It's, they literally said that line. However, it, you, you could not infer, like the, the superficial meaning that it implies the, is not the taken meaning. Taken in bad faith. Yeah. So, you know, and I think this we saw all throughout the campaign. And to be honest, the, um, I think this is one where the no campaign really um, was a lot worse on. I won't necessarily say conservative commentators, but certainly those who are uh, were on the no side were far more guilty of. Yeah, I, I would agree. In terms of the this, in terms of the spectrum, you know, the, the bell curve of behaviour and all that kind of stuff. Of course, the no vote is going to. <laughs> if you're someone who is a white supremacist or um, is inherently racist or, or whatever it is. You know, you're not going to be hidden away in the in the niche of the yes camp. <laughs> you're going to be in the no camp, right? And so there's always going to be a portion of that to contend with. It's really stark, right? So obviously, if you if you listen to the mainstream media through this campaign, you will get an outpouring, a torrent of yes campaign messages and so on. Yes, you will have some figures, some official figures on the no campaign. Um, you know, your Warren Mundines and, and prices and things like that, that that have done, you know, a pretty good job in the face of a lot of pressure. Uh, and, of course, Lydia thought. But, but what I would say is that, and it's something that I'm actually keen on having a discussion with you about, is that when you open social media, you know, and you see the comments against voice postings, it's pretty dark, you know, and like, to your point, on the no campaign, the amount of comments that uh, bordering or way over the line in terms of discrimination are a dime a dozen, right? Which is also makes it so hard to be on that side of the camp sometimes. Now, Facebook groups and TikTok and Instagram are a special beast. But what do you think is going on there? Do you think it is just really like a very small percentage of loud people? Or do you think that that is just like another current that we haven't fully understood? I think there are people who are genuinely really hardcore uh, tone deaf racists in Australia. Like, I do think that. So, so like, you know, maybe, maybe you and I are kind of grappling with, I mean, we're both yes voters, but we're, you know, we were both in our, maybe in our minds flirting with the notion of, of voting no. But more, more than flirting for me. That was uh, a couple of steps down the aisle. So, but, but we're not, we're very atypical. Let's say we both voted no, right? We would be vote, both very atypical for a no voter. And very few people who voted no would have a similar profile of reasons that they voted no as, as what we would have had. They would have had more bread and butter reasons that they voted no, including to vote no just to stick it to Hamish and Waleed on the on the project, right? That's I think that's true, but at the same time, you know, that when we're talking about social media and people who drive the debate and the conversation and the and the thought leaders on that side, they they tend to be kinda not necessarily the um, most savoury elements, put it that way. Yeah. 
it, it is it is really tough, right? And um, it's hard not to again. You know, we've just said, don't think that 60% of the population doesn't care about Indigenous people. But it's also hard not to sit back and say, when you look at a, a map of the different states and the stats, and they're like, oh, Queensland's almost at 70%. Surely there must be a higher correlation of or higher concentration of racists up in Queensland. <laughs> it's it's hard not to sit back and think that that's those two things are related. Um, but Obviously, this this thing is complex, and I think some of it is the proximity as well, right? Because for, let me let me just paint this example. I know personally people that are you know are, are very strong Christians, and they have had experiences and interactions with the indigenous population, either through outreach or whatever it is, that have been so horrible that they have decided to be like, "No, nah, I'm writing it off. I can't do it." And I think it's when when you deal with a group that's been disadvantaged and, and it's very hard to say, oh, all these reasons of why the conditions are what they are or how they're behaving is structural. When it's personally impacting you, you don't have that luxury of just rationalizing it. Oh, it's structural, you know. It's it's like they, they're, they're a victim as well in all of this, even though perhaps they have victimized you in, in, in how you've perceived it. And I think that that's clear that inner city elites probably don't have that proximity or that that in that kind of like day to day interaction in in most cases they're shielded from that and we're shielded from that so it becomes like this really theoretical thing it's like easy for us to say because we don't like we'll call a spade a spade like I have zero interaction with indigenous people so it's it's kind of all theoretical it, it's kind of like um the old uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs right because I guess the other element was the notwithstanding the the national debate and you know, all of our wonderful podcast episodes on the topic did still didn't even really have any views at all. Like just rocked up to the voting booth like, eh, I don't know. I haven't, what's this thing again? I, I don't really know anything about it. Oh, okay. Well, the, the mobile, but the, the, the remote community mobile voting booths that went to indigenous, like, you know, kind of places and they didn't even know what the voice was. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, is- but I think that like the, the notion that, if you're in an inner city elite kind of, you know, that's the stereotype, right? The level of worries in your life are, are, are probably less than that of regular Australia, right? And you can really get passionate about some of these things. It's a package deal too, right? Like let's let's be honest with ourselves, right? If, you, if you're the type of person to campaign, to go on Facebook and let off some, you know, really anti-Indigenous kind of sentiment, it's not going to stop there. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like with liberals, okay, if you feel very strongly about this, there's a higher percentage chance that you also feel strongly about, you know, other liberal causes, whether it be, you know, pro-Palestine, all these kind of other things, right? And it's the same with, you know, right-wing things. So I think that the tribalism of it plays in, right? Like they've already picked a team and that's why it makes the debate so hard, right? Because there are there is a genuine middle, trying to work out what to do, you know? Like, there is someone that... uh, So, on Facebook, I stumbled across this uh, exchange. There was someone that um, we went to school with, which will remain nameless, and they posted something to their Facebook friends, just their followers, right, and said, I have been trying to research The Voice. I'm genuinely finding it hard which direction to go in, you know? And she listed some things around, like, I want to support Indigenous people but I'm also unsure of the consequences and whether this will actually help what are everyone's thoughts. So she literally opened it up to her <laughs> to her Facebook group, right? What she was um, served up was 
just a torrent of biased information on both sides, right? Like biased to the point where you know when the tag name, they've, they've especially changed their like username, their handle <laughs> to be like a yes or no uh, reference and they've changed their profile picture to obviously support it. It's like, guys, like how is this going to help? Like how is this going to help this person, right? This meant to be your friend. Decide what to do, right? Like can't can't you come at it from my friend is struggling on this stuff and would like to know not what I think, but like what what the arguments are out there. Um, you know, bring on a more up-to-date version of chat GPT, I say. Well, I think a good way to end this is to maybe say we all think we're these really great analytical engines that, you know, really thoughtfully come to a good, clear conclusion about and our approach is like right and, you know, we we get like the best best result. Everyone else is fucking mad, right? But we, we're really sensible and we, we've really got good justification for our views of the world. Everyone goes through that same process and thinks the same thing about the way they think and see the world. And no one is in a position to give anyone truly clear, unbiased information about complex things like this except ChatGPT, which, by the way, when I prompted it, told me to vote no. So, <laughs> On the information you found. Yeah, yeah but way. like I, I, I was fair. I, you read it. I, I just said it to you. I did. I, I'm just saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I think I, that's I, what I, really, By the way, really I, didn't, I didn't follow its advice, clearly, so... Yeah, so it's like, why bother? Why bother? <laughs> you know, it reminds me of this, um, of, of the Marvel movie. Yeah, I can't remember exactly which one because there's a billion of them. But Tony Stark, he's inside his Iron Man suit and he's asking his AI, Jarvis, to calculate the percentage on something. So he's taking this action and Jarvis is like, you know, sir, there's there's only a, a 7% chance of this succeeding. And he's like, fuck it, i got to do it anyway. Because, he, and, you know, he's, he's the hero and, and it was the right thing to do. It's the, the you know, the the risk of, of kind of not doing it, I suppose. And I kind of feel for that a lot in this referendum, right? Like I think that if um, there was more alignment and we approached it in a different way, we could be in a different place with so much to gain and in a, in, in marching towards a different future for, for our relationship as, you know, not even just like for Indigenous people, like for us, like for, for the whole of Australia to be like, we've, we've had it out. We've found, we've found a way forward through all the, the fog of history and, and injustice and all these kind of things. Like that would be a celebration, right? That, that would be a celebration. And I've just, yeah, I just really feel for that missed opportunity, but um, we've spoken and you have to, this is, this is democracy in action, right? Well, um, Republic uh, 2024. Can I have a treaty with yourself? <laughs> maybe, maybe we can uh, ask the crown. When, uh, when, when Prince Charles dies, we'll, we'll become a republic. We'll be negotiating with Harry. <laughs> <laughs> when he's finalised the divorce with Meghan. Ooh, too soon. What is going on? There? <laughs>